Hello, and welcome to the PE Live podcast series, Energy Oracles. I'm Paul Hicken, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined by the doyen of the energy industry, the Executive Director of the IEA, Fatty Birol. I think we should start off, I'm going to start with a couple of softer questions to start with. Any question you want. You're a big football fan, Galatasaray. Um, you know Galatasaray? Doing very well in the league. Okay. But let's not talk about Europe, European <laughs> football. Yes. Game of football can teach us a lot about the fine balance between competition and teamwork and the penalties involved maybe if you don't play by the rules. What lessons do you take from football and apply to the energy sphere? So uh, when I became head of the year in the year 2015 and I came within the ranks, and I was lucky enough to come within the ranks, before me, head of the IEAs were very established politicians, for example, just before me. That we had the Dutch, former Dutch economic minister, and before that, the Japanese, French, and others. When I hit the, after I was elected as the head of the IEM, I had an all staff meeting. At that time, we were about 200 people at the IEM. I told my colleagues I would like to do two plus one thing as a strategy. Number one was opening the doors of the IEA emerging world. Up to that moment, IEA was IEA family, as we call it, the member countries were consisting of the so-called advanced economies or rich countries, whatever you call it, US, Canada, European countries, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand. But when you look at the energy sector, the biggest part of the growth is coming from the emerging world. So I told my colleagues that I will do everything to open the doors of the year to emerging world. And in a very short period of time, we had more than 10 countries joining the IEA as a members, associate members from Mexico to India, India to China, China to Brazil, South Africa, and others. This is number one. Number two, IEA had a pivotal role in terms of the traditional energy sources, oil, gas, nuclear, electricity, and others. We made a big push on the clean energies. This is the renewables, electric cars, new technologies, hydrogen, and others. These were two parts of the two main parts of the our modernization strategy. But plus one came to the world of the as I call it, meritocracy. So when you international organizations, when you hire people, new people, their contracts, how long they will stay with us, whom do we hire for this job, that job? will be based on basically on one single factor, which is the meritocracy. This is in the football as well. You put a player, I mean, you throughout the week, you make training of all the 22 players, so maybe even more, but you have to choose 11 of them to play with you on the pitch. So you have to choose the players who are not the famous ones, who are liked by the president of the club or who knows whom. It should be on the meritocracy. If you build a team, the meritocracy, players understand that you choose the ones who really deserve to play. You choose them together and you make them a team. It is the, perhaps one common team between the football and how I try to manage the idea. Thanks. You're on course to become probably the longest serving executive director. Been there a long time. Like you said you've been there a long time at the institution and you've done a lot to change and evolve. How do you see it changing in the future? And how do you see it evolving as an institution? And if I can ask a double part of that question, which is, especially given, for example, we look at the IEA and how it set up its original mission, energy security around providing oil stocks, key oil stocks across the OECD, 
And now it seems like it's a double-headed mission, transition and security. How do you see that working together going forward? I think both of them will be still the main pillars of the IEA. Energy security is still a very important issue. We have seen this recently when Russia invaded Ukraine. Oil security, gas security, they are very important. And we are going through the first global energy crisis. And through that, we understand how important it is to secure energy. And even before that, we had the COVID crisis. And through that, we understand how important it is to have a secure electricity power system. But we have another crisis, which is the climate crisis. And energy is at the heart of it. Because 80% of the emissions causing climate change comes from the energy sector. So if we want to have a planet which is more or less like today in the future, we have to transform the energy sector. And this is what we are trying to do, push more clean energy sources in a secure and affordable way. And there is one area where this energy security and the clean energy transition merge together, which is the security of the critical minerals and clean energy technology manufacturing. This will be an emerging topic for the IEA in the next years to come, ranging from the availability of critical minerals to diversification of the clean energy technology manufacturing from one single country to many other countries around the world. On that note about security and transition, yeah. how do you reconcile the need for like energy storage? Because, for example, it's very difficult to store newer forms of energy, whereas oil and to a lesser degree gas yes. are easier to store. Yes. So as we transition, the need for those buffers to still be fossil fuels still at play, or is that a challenge for the future, finding new ways to store and have buffers and backups in the system? This is an important issue because we want to have a transition to clean energy, but we want to have an orderly transition to clean energy. We shouldn't be dreaming of tomorrow, we don't need any more oil, we don't need any more uh, natural gas. We will still need them, but their share their contribution to global energy system needs to go down if we want to reach our climate goals. You cannot, on one hand, wish to have more oil, more gas, and at the same time reaching our climate targets. This doesn't work. So we have to have an orderly transition. We don't want to see energy security jeopardized, definitely not. And therefore, we have to reduce the share of oil, gas, and coal big time, but if and if they are compensated with the clean energy sources. We cannot afford to have another energy crisis because of lack of energy. Here, one critical issue is that the increasing share of renewables, if they are not secured in a way to electricity storage or hydropower and other stable energy sources or nuclear power in some cases, we may have some difficulties from blackouts to lack of electricity, so therefore it will be a challenge. So our mission is to see, to ensure an orderly energy transition. We are not dreaming of tomorrow, no oil, no gas, and no coal. We will still need them for some time to come, but their share need to come down and replace more and more for clean energy sources. And critical issue here is energy efficiency. We have to use energy much more efficiently And some of the recent trends we are seeing is many countries are making steps in the right direction. Thanks. You mentioned at the start about the new countries that come in as associate members and other members. I think the first time I met you, I was in South Africa for Africa Oil Week when South Africa was becoming an associate member. And I want to talk a little bit about 
how can developed world governments work with Africa and other developing regions to harness their renewables potential and ensure a just transition? I think, you know, how important is this to the global transition? I think it is critical, both in terms of energy transition and to have a fair and equitable world. So I give you a couple of numbers. Today in Sub-Saharan Africa, one out of two persons, they don't have electricity. This is a really it's a major barrier for economic and social development. Yet Africa has the richest source of solar potential. About 40% of the good quality solar radiation in the world comes to Sub-Saharan Africa. However, the amount of solar electricity in entire Sub-Saharan Africa is produced, generated, is half of the solar electricity generated in Belgium. So if you think of the global map, how big is the Sub-Saharan Africa and the, uh, Belgium, how much Sub-Saharan Africa gets solar and how much Belgium, it is half of it. This is a very tragic situation. And it is, in my view, in the interest of everybody in the world who really wants to have a fair, equitable world to make sure that the Sub-Saharan African countries and other developing nations in the world have access to investment for clean energy. And if everything is left to markets, those countries will have major, major difficulties to finance of the clean energy investment. It can be solar, it can be wind, it can be other energy sources. So it is a job for the, and the responsibility, in my view, of the advanced economies to support them either directly or through multilateral development banks. Good point. On that, take that note forward, which how important it is to combine industrial and green strategies? And does the IRA and the EU Green Deal go far enough on this? And take it further, how much of a risk is there that these strategies become protectionist by promoting local content and hampering the development of global green tech trade? I think the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, in my view, is the single largest climate action since Paris Agreement 2015. Because the United States is the largest economy of the world, and we have been, everybody has been criticizing the United States not to make major push in terms of climate change. And this amount of big support in terms of incentives, in terms of the tax reliefs, in terms of subsidies to push clean energy sources is extremely important. Having said that, those subsidies in the United States or similar proposals in Europe should not be an obstacle for the free trade around the world. But when I look at the future, I see that the clean energy technology manufacturing is the next chapter of the industry in general in the world. And there will be a competition between US, Europe, China, India, other countries. And I hope this competition will go in a way it will help to bring the cost of clean energy technologies down and it will be beneficial for everybody. To protect your own economy in the purely selfish way will not benefit our fight against climate change. So what I hope is that the money should be put, okay, very good, bring the cost of clean energy technology down, making it accessible and affordable for the world population. And the best way to do is to be in line with the international free trade rules. And on that same note, to what extent are we already in a green arms race? And if so, is that beneficial or detrimental to the global transition? Today, the clean energy technology or green technologies, as you said, is dominated by one single country in the world, which is China. China has taken this as a 
clean energy technology manufacturing as an industrial project since decades. And as a result, they have a huge share. 75% of the batteries in the world are manufactured in China. More than 80% of solar panels in China, electric cars and everything. But China, by doing this, brought the cost of this technology down, made a service for the world. Relying on one single country, whoever this country is, is always a risky business. We have seen in Europe, over-reliance on Russian energy caused a lot of pain in European economy and for European people. So I believe if other countries come and put money in the clean energy technology manufacturing, such as United States or Europe or India, would help to diversify the clean energy technology manufacturing from one single country to many countries, and I hope this will be made in a way that it will help further bring the cost down and there is a healthy competition. Healthy competition in the clean energy technology manufacturing would benefit the entire world. This is my hope. To what extent does the transition demand a new approach to energy, geopolitics, foreign policy? I have been dealing with energy issues for some time and energy and geopolitics were always interwoven. I have never seen they have been so much, so closely interwoven. It is something that I really don't like. I would like to see energy as a business, as a part of the economy. And unfortunately, it is where energy starts, where geopolitics, where energy finishes and where geopolitics starts, or where geopolitics finishes and energy starts, there is a bit of a confusion there. I hope countries see the energy as a blood of the economy, as a means of a better and more comfortable life for the people. But I am afraid there is a tendency now that the energy is becoming a political weapon in a certain context. And the, I hope clean energy transition will provide opportunity to reduce those geopolitical risks. And here come, we come to the same point that you asked before. Energy security is important and I am afraid will be important for years to come. And to take that point forward, how much do you find the term energy trilemma helpful in the framing of the challenge between sustainability, security and affordability and the tensions between these three factors that aren't always aligned? We often talk about the cost of electric vehicles or the challenge of providing enough security from fossil fuels, which therefore impacts sustainability. Do you feel that any trilemma is a helpful way of framing it or perceiving it? And how can they be in sync? I mean, these three pressure points were there, are there, and will be there for many years to come. There's nothing new to be with us in the future as well. And here, since those challenges are so big, the climate change, the cost of energy security, here, the most important thing in my view, and since the tensions are getting much more stronger, there is a growing role for the public policies, government roles uh, to play in order to find smart trade-offs between those three pressure points and looking at the agenda countries' social and economic priorities and find these trade-offs and developing policies in that direction. So these pressure points will be with us for many years to come. But the important thing is to find the right balance between all these three. And here, market principles are, of course, very important to have a healthy energy economy. But I believe there is a growing role for the government policies in the next years to come. And on that note, to be a little bit controversial, can fossil fuels be part of a solution or any solution going forward? For example, to this, how important is it for energy companies to use profits 
to fund cleaner energy initiatives? Or should it be that they get taxed more? You know, the dilemma between taxing them more or to try and incentivize them to produce more, create more greener fuels, for example, that tension between the two or the way in, say, poorer countries that the transition is really from wood and coal to gas while in Europe it's probably from gas and oil to hydrogen and EVs so how do you see those sort of little dilemmas so to speak that happen around either regionally or within sort of policy initiatives so is yeah, we have no problems with any source of fuels our problems are with emissions so for me as I said six years Energy is good, but emissions are bad. If we can use these fossil fuels in an emission-free way, such as making carbon capture and storage as a part of our energy system, and if we can abate the emissions of the fossil fuels, no problems whatsoever. But we are not seeing from the major energy companies and energy exporting countries enough efforts to make the carbon capture and storage is a key part of our energy mix. When I look at the amount of money going to carbon capture and storage today compared to other technologies, it is very, very limited, the money. And I wish the energy companies and energy exporting countries would put more resources on carbon capture and storage. It can be carried out in different ways. For example, we look every year how much money the oil and gas companies make each year. In the last few years, on average, they were making money about $1.4, $1.5 trillion each year. But last year, their revenues jumped to $4 trillion US dollars, amount of money we have never, ever seen in the history. And I very much hope that this huge increase in the oil and gas revenues of those companies or those, those countries would go to clean energy technologies to finance them, especially in the developing countries. But this is not a trend that we are unfortunately seeing today. There is a job for the governments to see what they do with this major oil and gas revenue. Some of them are thinking taxing, some of them other incentive. But I should also make something clear that the when we talk about this huge $4 trillion People think only on the international oil companies. Yes, they are making a, they made also very, how should I say, handsome revenues, to be honest with you. But about 85% of this $4 trillion goes to the national oil companies in Middle East, in Asia, in Latin America, and elsewhere. So the, our eyes shouldn't be only on the IOCs. It should be there, but not only on the IOCs, but also national oil companies as well. And they have to also prove that they really are part of the clean energy transition, not only with words, but also with their actions and the money they spent. That's a good point. On a similar note, can energy solutions to net zero end up as energy problems? Yes. Electric vehicles, nuclear, the industrial need, as the push to green technology, the amount of fossil fuels needed to an industrial push to create the to transition. This again, there seems to be a tension between push to transition and electric vehicles, the strain on the power grid, all the sort of problems that may create through the lack of resources through through metals and the price of lithium, for example, or copper. Exactly. How much does this problem this a, solution become part of the problem? The beauty or the challenge of the energy is very complex. For example, let's take the example of electric cars you mentioned. Their share is increasing 
significantly from day to day, not even from year to year. And we are seeing that their share in the market, such as China, such as Europe, such as United States, in the year 2030, which is tomorrow, every second car sold in these big markets will be an electric car. It has three consequences. One, as you mentioned, under electric supply. I mean, if you build a lot of electric cars, you have to supply electricity, and you have to build, first of all, significant amount of additional electricity generation capacity. And this, if we want the benefit for the climate, this should be the clean energy. This is number one. Number two, it is going to require a lot of critical minerals, so, such as lithium and others. We have to make sure that critical minerals come on time in order to not to see a bottleneck in the market so the prices go up. This is the second one. And the third one is for the oil industry, the increasing share of electric cars and then buses and trucks that are coming online following the electric car example. This will have implications for the oil demand around the world. And I think if I was an oil company, in addition to looking at the productivity of my oil fields and my oil investment, I will keep a good eye on the electrification of the transportation sector because this is a lion's share in the oil demand today. So one has to watch these three things at the same time, electricity generation, the critical minerals, lithium and others, and at the same time, impacts on the oil markets. If you can tell our listeners, and what's life like at the IEA? You know, a more broader question, you know, how's the... Life in the IEA is beautiful, I can tell you that. We have problems that we have never seen before. So this morning, I can give you, this morning, my HR staff, HR colleagues came here, and he was very surprised with one thing. We just opened an analyst position, and we entered a problem because for one analyst position, there were over 800 people applied, and that our system broke because of the, so many applicants. I am very happy to see so many people want to come and work, work in the IEA, and when we choose them, we will choose them on the basis of meritocracy, and they see a purpose in the IEM. Recently, I had a meeting with one of the CEOs of a major, major oil company. He was complaining to me that they have difficulties to recruit people because when I look at the young generation today, when they finish the universities and they want to apply for a job, in addition to the financial package, they look at if there's a purpose of working there, but how much they contribute to the public good and others. And as such, IEM provides a very good opportunity and my colleagues are here, at least they tell me they are very happy because they not only make a work that is good for them, we have a family environment here, and at the same time, they see a great impact of the work of what they are doing. Is a leader modus organization here. We are definitely quoting the different observers around the world. We are definitely punching well above our weight, which is a good recognition for the hard work of my colleagues. Brilliant. Thank you very Thank much, you very sir. much, Paul. Thank you very much. Thank you. All the best. Thanks for listening. For more information on the energy markets, check out our publications, Petroleum Economist, Hydro Economist, and Carbon Economist. Thanks again for listening.